This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So Magdalena, we're here to talk about your new book. Well, usually when I get interviewed... Um, it's by a CEO, oftentimes a male, definitely not so well-educated in female spirituality and um, all kinds of other cognitive uh, fields. So I'm really honored, and you'll put me to test. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to welcome you this evening and have just been loving your book. Really just feel so inspired, and it's so thrilling at turns. And for somebody who is not in the tech world, was a whole new venture into a world that I don't know anything about. And so I'm really excited to learn more from you. And I'm wondering first to start with is after three decades in this field that's growing so rapidly, what compelled you to to want to share your story at this point? Um, so about a year ago, I wrote a op-ed that uh, USA Today picked up. And the op-ed was titled, coming out as a woman in venture capital. And it was really the beginning of uh, my wanting to speak on this topic of being a woman in technology, because I felt that until then, I had very much uh, ignored my gender. Actually, ignoring my gender was one reason why I'd been successful. I felt that I always wore the team's uniform and all I cared about was having someone pass me the ball so that I could play. But I realized that that actually was a disservice to the young women who need role models, who really need that being female is not a hindrance to success in technology. So for the first time, really about a year ago, I felt a very strong responsibility to start speaking up and to start talking about my story, and not just mine, but also other successful women. There are 27 who are interviewed in the book. Um, so that even though statistically we're so very insignificant, anecdotally, we actually have some really good teachings and you know learnings that we've had and then teachings that we can pass on. So it's really with that, um, with that feeling of responsibility that I um, embarked on writing Power Up. Great. I love I haven't read that op-ed, so thank you for that. I'll have to check that out after our conversation. So we talked at the very beginning, and, and I mentioned to Magdalena, my goodness, I can't imagine a more perfect time to have this conversation this week in this country, in this city. Um, how, how did you manage that? How did you manage this timing? <laughs> And I see we see that throughout the book, too, that you almost have a sixth sense for, for many different things in the book and in your life and in your work experience that you seem to, I don't know if there's just an inner voice that you're listening to, or I'm just wondering if you could talk more to that. Yeah, I wish I had an inner voice that I listened to. <laughs> no, I, um, I'm an engineer by training, 
So I look at the world very much from an engineer's point of view. And I think that the best I can say is that I um, do two things. Number one, I do pattern recognition. And I am willing to actually, you know, look at things analytically and see if I can see a pattern. And then the second is that I'm willing to take risks. So I'm willing to take a, make a stance. I'm willing to voice my opinion. I actually don't care about being wrong. As someone said the other day, I may not be right always, but I'm never wrong. So it's that approach of, I don't really worry about being wrong. If I fail, it doesn't really matter. If I'm wrong, it doesn't really matter. But taking a stance, take, having a hypothesis is really important. And if you're good at pattern recognition, you probably are going to have a hypothesis that will probably pan out. And if it doesn't, who cares? It doesn't really matter. I was surprised throughout this book, Power Up, that the, there were so many themes of mistakes, making mistakes of... Actually, um, that's how I opened the book, is yeah. with, with failure. Yeah, and I was so surprised at that because for many people, failure is being so, making yourself vulnerable and sharing these stories, not just yours, but the other, um, the people that you brought, the stories yes. you brought into your book. And so I'm curious about that as well, the mistakes as being such a central theme in this book. Yeah, actually, I um, say, you know, the very first chapter opens with um, the statement that success isn't about the desire to really win. It's actually the willingness to fail. And because in life, and then I say, you know, it might be counterintuitive that this is supposed to be a book about success. And here I am, before I've said anything about success, I'm talking about failure. But in fact, that's the natural order in life. Oftentimes, you need to fail multiple times so that you can succeed once. So if we are so afraid of failure, we will never really take risks. And if we're willing to take risks, we might fail multiple times, but we will never get disappointed. We will never get discouraged. We'll just keep pushing up, pushing forward, powering up. So I do believe that the willingness to fail actually has made Silicon Valley what it is. It's the acceptance of failure is why people can take risks, why people can start companies, and why venture capitalists fund people who just recently lost their money. So it's that kind of mentality. And I think that internalizing that and applying it to our personal lives as well as our professional lives does help us go a long ways. Sooner or later, things work out. Not always, but never, never to get discouraged by failure. And then secondarily, even more important, never to really blame ourselves, but to learn from it. Was there somebody that you learned? Is, is this, was this modeled for you? Or is this just a Magdalena? Ism, and, and it seems so, like, as you said, so, um, it dovetails so well with the tech world. And so I'm wondering if there was an aha moment that you had in your life, that that, that world is for you. Um, I think that two things fed to who I am and this mentality. One was, one is being an immigrant. And um, if you're an immigrant, um, you only have one thing that you focus on, and that's survival. You know, because no one really opens doors for you. No one really gives you anything. You also, as an immigrant, really have no sense of entitlement. You're not entitled to anything. You're actually in someone else's homeland. 
this is not your place. It's not where you were born. So anything that happens, you're so grateful for. Um, I think that that had a lot to do with um, with this approach of failure. Um, you know, failure was never going to stop me because I was going to figure it out one way or the other. I'm a survivor. And um, I think that the other piece for me was having really nothing to lose. I mean, I didn't have very much. I came with really very little t here. I came with two suitcases and under $100 uh, because when I was leaving Turkey, the Turkish government didn't have open borders on currency. Um, so you were allowed it a certain amount. And because I was a student, I was allowed a very small amount. And so my whole approach to life has always been, I don't have very much to lose. You know, I did just fine with two suitcases. And if that's all I have, I'll be fine. My lifestyle has never really become extravagant or expensive. And so that gives me the amazing freedom of trying different things, because if it doesn't work out, so be it. I love the story that you shared about coming to Chicago for the first time. Uh, my first night in America. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I would love to. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> okay. So you have to realize that um, I'm 17 years old, and I have had this lifelong dream, desire, conviction that I'm going to go to the university in the United States. Um, where that came from was that before I learned English, I used to listen to this radio station in Turkey, which was um, uh, which, which broadcast um, from a American base. And the reason why I listened to it was because they played what I called American music. You know, was the um, Jimi Hendrix and whatever other rock and roll that I was into at the time. So one day I was playing outside and um, I tuned into the radio station, but this time they weren't playing any music. It was just the announcer with an amazingly excited voice saying all kinds of stuff. So I knew something incredible was happening. It turns out what had ha just happened was that man had landed on the moon. So when I figured that out, I thought, uh, and, and those of you guys who've read the, the book know the story, I thought, wow, Americans are incredible. They sent men to the moon, even the sky is not the limit for America, and they play, they do all that wearing blue jeans and listening to rock and roll. Uh, I want to go there. Um, so I was convinced I was going to come to the United States one way or the other. And I told everybody that I was going to go to the university in America. Now, you have to realize that in the Turkey that I grew up, uh, people didn't really leave to go to the university. They went to the university in Turkey. Furthermore, I come from a family where my parents didn't go to the university and my grandparents didn't go to the university. So going to the university wasn't the default. Uh, but I was convinced I was going to do it. So I... Um, went to an American school, an international school, and learned English. So that all added up to my coming to America. And finally, fast forward to my first day, my, um, I'd applied to two universities uh, that I knew of, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Illinois Institute, sorry, uh, California Institute of Technology when I took my SAT exam. And then they, the SAT organization said that they would send my scores for free to a third school. 
And because I didn't know a third one, I went to a thick book, universities and colleges of the United States, and I found a third school that rhymed with the first two, uh, <laughs> Illinois Institute of Technology. That sounded just like Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And the reason why I chose it was because it was next to a big lake, and I like water. And that was really my criteria. I knew nothing about Chicago. So, so IIT accepted me first. And I thought, wow, they really like me. This is amazing. And I accepted their acceptance and didn't care to wait for MIT or Caltech uh, because they liked me. So I show up in Chicago and I'm in a cab, taxi cab from O'Hare Airport. And we're driving. Um, I'm dressed really nicely because it's my coming to America clothes. I'm dressed in pleated skirt and high heels and you know this is a big thing for me it's I'm coming to America and the neighborhood this is south side Chicago we're in the neighborhood gets worse and worse and I say to the guy uh, when are we going to get to my school and he says we're already at your school and it turns out IIT was located in the middle of the projects and um, actually this is not in the book I said, okay, then, um, you know, I'll pay you and let me out. And he said, no, I'm not going to let you out because I don't want to see your picture in the newspaper tomorrow. I am going to find your dormitory and I'm going to give you to someone because obviously you don't know what you're doing. So, so anyway, he finds, he, we went to the administration building and then we found out where my dormitory was and he took me to the dormitory. It was locked. We rang the doorbell. Someone came. He handed me to them. He wished me the best and left. I was famished. It was a 27-hour journey. And I asked my dorm mates, uh, when would dinner be served? And they said dinner was already served. This is America. We eat earlier. Um, and I said, is there a place where I can get dinner around here? And they said there was a McDonald's two and a half blocks down the street, and I could go there. So because I was so hungry, I didn't bother to change my clothes. I started walking down the street to go to this place called McDonald's. And sure enough, I'm like a block on my walk, and this police car pulls right alongside me. And I act as if I don't see them. And the policeman, without opening his window, rolling down his window, says, ma'am, where are you going dressed like that? And I say, sir, I am going to a restaurant called McDonald's. <laughs> and then he stops. And he rolls down his window and says, get in the back. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm just, I've just arrived. And I already am getting arrested by the police. <laughs> what have I done? Anyway, they, there are two cops in the car. And they drive me to McDonald's. They get out with me. They help me order my meal. I, then they put me back in the car. They drive me back. And I'm wearing a gold bracelets. They tell me that I should take my gold bracelets off because they can get me killed. They can get me mugged. It just is not a good idea, plus change the way I dress. And they close the, you know, the, the dormitory door closes. I'm just in shock. Now, my father had really not been supportive of my coming to the United States. He thought that my being in America so far away 
was just a very bad idea. And I had come in many ways without his support. So I go upstairs, I find a roommate who has a telephone, and I call my parents. And I say, um, you know, Dad, you were absolutely correct. America is a very scary place. By the way, the only thing he knew about Chicago was Al Capone. That's all he had heard of. So he was really scared about Chicago. So I say, you were right. America is incredibly unsafe and scary. I already got picked up by the police. And the police <laughs> said that I could get killed uh, just for walking down the street to a restaurant. And um, anyway, I have a return trip. Uh, you bought me a ticket with a return. I am going to change the date. I am going to come back. I apologize. You were right. I was wrong. And instead of having my father say, oh, what a relief. Finally, you get it. He says, wait a second. This was your lifelong dream. You always wanted to do this. Why give up so fast? Why not give it a shot? Why are you so intimidated? Where is your self-respect? You owe it to yourself to spend at least one year there. And I have no doubt that you can handle it. Just do what the police says. Change the way you dress. Don't wear gold bracelets. And I know, I have full confidence that you are going to survive and do well. And then he hangs up on me. And I thought, wow, how could this be? Well, you know, basically the book is titled Power Up because my father was telling me to power up. He was basically telling me, don't get discouraged. Don't get intimidated. Don't get scared. You have what it takes to be successful. You have what it takes to make it. So that's really um, the guy that gave me the idea of powering up throughout my life. And I would love to pass it on to others because it certainly worked for me. Now, one last thing I want to add is when I went home that summer, he basically told me that he was sleepless very many nights, just really worried about my safety. But for the year that I was there, he never, never made me feel that. All he ever said was how confident he was that I was just going to do so well. So one of the things I spoke yesterday to a corporation, and what I said to the 95 men that were in the audience, I said, anyone who has a daughter, I just tell you the very best gift you can give your child this Christmas is the, is the gift of self-confidence because that's a gift that they will keep all their life. And I certainly was given that. I was given that by my parents and I was given that by my teachers. So I encourage anybody that you have in your life that's younger than you, it's a great gift to give. Thank you for asking me about that. I love I that I apologize. Story. I was a little longer <laughs> than you probably expected. It's such a great story and probably one of the best stories I've ever heard of a Chicago cop. I'm from Illinois. And so yeah. <laughs> there's not many great stories. <laughs> um, they knew I was so clueless. <laughs> <laughs> so throughout this book, you talk about success. You talk about powering up in so many different ways. And so I'm wondering from 
this first story and, mm-hmm. you know, getting to, you know, yourself to America and getting into university and then coming to California. Has your definition of success changed with time and experience? Um, or has I it really stayed the same? I really don't think so. I think that my definition of success has always been my own definition. I have never allowed anyone else to define success for me. You know, when, when my companies have done well, people have said, well, don't you feel really great? Don't you feel successful? No, my companies don't define me or my jobs don't define me. What defines me is how I feel about myself. And sometimes you can be very successful to the outside world, but you don't feel great. And that's no success. So I don't think my definition of success has never really changed throughout my life. Even when I was a kid, um, when I was a kid, all I really wanted because I was a minority, um, I was a recognized minority, um, a Christian Armenian in a Muslim Turkey. And all I really cared about was for me, success was being allowed to play with other kids. That's all I cared about. And I did have sand kicked on my face, and I had, I was often pushed out, and I didn't care if the children liked me or not. All I cared was that I get to play. And so the goal was to be so good at the game, whatever game we were playing, that I would be included even if they didn't like me, because I would make that team win. So it was all about being good. It wasn't about being liked. And that was my definition of success. Eventually, they liked me because I was actually, you know, making the team win. But it wasn't their judgment of me that defined me. It was how I felt about myself. And that, that still continues. My husband's sitting here in the front row, actually. He can probably attest to that. <laughs> you talk a lot about play and teamwork and community and network throughout this book as well. And how to be a leader on a team, how to be a co-leader within a big organization, within um, with just two entrepreneurs even, right? On all these different levels, um, knowing what your skills are, knowing what your strengths are, and knowing when you need to, when you need support, yeah. Right. And so could you say more about teamwork? What does teamwork? Yeah, so we actually were talking about that a little bit before um, before the session started. Um, It's really complimenting, it's not, it's not a zero-sum game, you know, it never is. It's complementing where your weaknesses are with people who have strengths in those areas and feeling good that you can contribute to your strengths, not feeling like you're smarter than everyone else or you're better than anyone else because we never have all the pieces, you know. You need multiple pieces to make it work. So it's, it's finding that, um, that group that Basically, everyone is um, helping the group, the team, win at the end. Um, I also talk about the concept of sponsors versus mentors, which I think is very important, especially for young women, because so many, so many books have talked about the importance of mentorship, and mentors have really kind of been made out to be almost like fairy godmothers. If you have a mentor, all the doors will be open to you, and people will make all kinds of good things happen to you without you actually having to do very much. And so I've, I've seen in my career many young women 
out to search for this perfect mentor and feeling like they can't be successful because they just don't have a good mentor. And um, it's not true. First of all, the 27 women that I interviewed, very few of them said that they had a mentor in their lives. Most of them have not. And what is more important, I believe, is that even though mentorship is focused and is based on a benevolent relationship where the mentor gives to the mentee, but doesn't take very much from the mentee. I actually think that a healthier and more lasting relationship is a sponsor. A sponsor is someone who actually benefits from your success. Someone who's maybe higher up who can sponsor you, but in the meantime, they have a gain from your success. Because a sponsor has a personal gain from your success, they're very motivated, self-motivated to make you successful. A best example of a sponsor is a boss. If you are working for someone and you are making, you're, you're being very successful, by definition, you're making them successful. So I think these symbiotic relationships where a sponsor is actually benefiting from your success at the end of the day, they yield much more support to the young person. I love that. I love the idea of this, the symbiotic, the motion. Um, and water comes up a lot in this oh, book yes. as well, in lots of different ways. Um, and so That's when why I, I went to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, and, it, and it reminds me of this, this concept you have, of the um, power to flow. Ah, yes. And so... Can you explain to our yeah, audience so, what Yeah, so uh, where I'm from, I'm from Turkey. Uh, we have a tradition, and it still continues. When someone is embarking on a journey, and um, they're going to be gone for a while, or they're going somewhere far, basically, they're not just their family and friends, but the whole neighborhood shows up. And everyone has buckets of water in their hands. It's, it's really a scene to see. And as you're either driving away or walking away or whatever, maybe you're taking a boat, um, people just throw the buckets of water after you. And the idea is that they're saying, may you flow like water, because water won't stop when it reaches a barrier. Water will go through a crack in a rock. Water will go around a boulder. So they're basically wishing you well and wishing you that the flow and to reach wherever you're trying to go to, whatever your journey destination is. Um, in fact, that imagery, even though it is a very unique imagery to my part of the world, has really carried me through, through some very dark times where I really felt like I was hitting a wall and I kept thinking of that crowd that was gathered, you know, all these people throwing water behind me. And I was thinking, I'd, I'd think during the difficult times that they believed I could flow and I, I continue to flow. I will make it through no matter what, I'll find a way. Maybe I won't exactly reach that destination that I had in mind, but I'll get somewhere. And it's that desire to keep pushing forward. Thank you. Um, it's such a lovely image. I love that image of the of your neighborhood behind you supporting you. It's it is. I mean, it's incredible because today Istanbul is actually a very sophisticated city, and um, still people show up. And you know, it might be skyscrapers around, but people show up with buckets. 
and they will throw the bucket of water after whomever is departing for the airport. Thank you. So I like the idea of maybe you might not reach that destination, but you might reach another destination, and you have a whole chapter on this. Right. I mean, sometimes, um, very often actually, I am approached by young people, and I'm told by them, I don't have a strategy on my career. Could you please help me? Could you please tell me, did you have a grand strategy, or how old were you when you came up with a strategy about your career? And, um, you know, they feel that they are somehow doing something wrong because they don't really know how they should drive their career, how they should drive their life. And actually, not that long ago, I was having dinner with my niece. And um, she was talking to me and she said, you know, you're so successful, Auntie, and I really want to be like you. Um, What were you doing when you were my age? And I said, "Um, how old are you now? Are you 31? She said, yeah, I just turned 31. I said, let me think. When I was 31, and then I thought, and I said, oh, when I was 31, I was unemployed. And then I thought some more. I said, you know, when I was 31, my husband was also unemployed. <laughs> and, and we had two little kids. We had, we had two babies. And she was like, really? You were unemployed? So the bottom line is, it doesn't really matter where you think you are at this moment. What really matters is seizing the opportunity that is given to you or comes in front of you and making the best of it. Because let's face it, none of us are that smart to be able to strategize and come up with a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year career. It just doesn't work that way. I'm definitely not that smart. I never knew. I became an entrepreneur not because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't even really know how to spell the word. I became an entrepreneur because I couldn't find a job at 31. That's when I became an entrepreneur. So whatever it is, but when I had an opportunity in front of me, I actually seized it with both arms and I made the best of it. And it's really that very tactical reaction. It's not the strategy. I've never been a good strategist, but I'm a good tactical person, you know, executing on something. That's really what it's all about. Was there, I'm curious um, about your writing process and if there was a part in this book that you're particularly proud of or that was particularly surprising in the process of writing it that you hadn't expected coming across or a person maybe you hadn't expected coming across. Um, So the writing process, well, remember I said earlier I'm an engineer and I studied, I got two engineering degrees and when I was at Stanford, I, everyone has to take an English class, right? So I'm taking my first English class, and you have to write a short essay. And I write one, and I write about Istanbul. Istanbul at dusk, and the fairies are going back and forth, and I have this amazing imagery, and I'm so emotionally involved with my essay. I have tears in my eyes, and I think I'm going to get an A+. I mean, it just couldn't be better. And I turn it in, incredibly proud of my work, and I get it back and it's a C minus. I'm blown away, I can't believe it. I mean, when I read it, I'm so emotional, I can't believe the guy gave me a C minus. 
So I go to him and I say, didn't you think it was amazing? I mean, I thought it was amazing. He says, no, you had no, no storyline. It was just like this mishmash of stuff thrown in. Anyway, that was a story to illustrate that I was not a good writer. I've never been a good writer. <laughs> just not my, you know, doesn't come naturally to me. So the most, the biggest miracle about this book is that it's, I finished it. The biggest miracle is that it's out. I can't believe it. It happened. And furthermore, that people think it's good. That's really shocking. So, so I... Um, didn't know how the process would be, but I did what I do all the time when I want to take make something happen. I put myself on a schedule. So I normally like to hike and be outdoors on Saturdays. Well, guess what? During the writing period, I wrote every Saturday. I did nothing but write. I made myself write. And I'm very proud that it. I was able to finish because it wasn't naturally easy for me to write a book. Um, I also am very proud of the fact that I was able to share personal stories because that's not easy. Personal stories uh, make you very vulnerable when you share them, right? All of a sudden, people you've never met before are talking about your mother or your father or you, and it's just you've exposed yourself in such a way that until you put your book out, you don't really even think about the fact that people you don't know will know so much about you. But I'm very happy that I was able to do that because I do think that we learn from each other. I also am incredibly grateful to the 27 women who shared their stories. So Julie Wainwright is my hero. Um, this is a woman, for those of you who are older, um, you will remember the dot-com bust uh, when, you know, the amazing companies that had gotten all the funding during the dot-com boom all of a sudden were going under. Well, her company was Pets.com, and it is the poster child, unfortunately, for the dot-com bust, especially unfortunate for her. And what is really sad is that the day she was going to go into the office and do the big corporate layoff and, you know, shut the place down, that morning uh, before she left, her husband, who was really stressed out by this whole thing, asked for a divorce. So she lost basically everything. Uh, she lost her marriage and she lost her company at the same time. And Julie Wainwright today is the CEO founder of a very successful company called The Real Real. And really to watch Julie, and Julie is older than me, and Julie is not only an amazing woman because she was able to come out of the ashes, literally, but the fact that she had the guts to start another startup, knowing that she probably wouldn't get any funding because of her, you know, pets.com. But what she says, which I really want to, you know, leave you with, she said, I didn't, I didn't let those two years that I was this, you know, I was at pets define me. I said to myself, I've already had a over a decade of career, 15 years or whatever she was. I said to myself, Julie says, I was a successful entrepreneur. I was a successful um, manager at Clorox. Just because pets die doesn't mean I'm not good, because I actually have been good, and I can be good again. 
And that was that motivation that made her, you know, feel confident enough and have the courage to start another company. Right. I think that was in the chapter quitting, failing, and rebirth. Right. Rebirth. Yes. Right. Yes. And what it means to re envision the next steps for yourself um, and knowing when to stop, Absolutely. when to quit, and when to try something new. Exactly. No, it's very true. My favorite rebirth story, though, is um, about a woman who, at 63 years old, who had never had a job before, uh, for the very first time, had the opportunity to have a job. I'm talking about my mother. Uh, My mother was a stay-at-home mom, and not only did she help um, or did she raise us, she also helped raise her grandchildren. So she basically is the poster child of giving. She gave to everybody. She gave to her husband. She gave to her mother. She gave to her mother-in-law. She gave to her children. She gave to everyone. She never took anything from anybody. Thus, she wasn't a very satisfied person. She felt that she had made so many sacrifices in her life and wasn't always appreciated. So to watch this woman who had never had a career, had never worked for a day in her life, at 63 years old, get her first job at Whole Foods Market in the bakery section in Palo Alto and learn how to make cappuccinos. And that paycheck and the respect and honor that goes with that, that recognition that she was really good at something, it didn't matter what it was. That amazing rebirth that my mother experienced that I got to see with my own eyes tells me that it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your title is. What really matters is how you feel about it. Making cappuccinos for my mother was such an accomplishment. And she got so many compliments. She was such a superstar in Palo Alto. Everyone knew her. Because, of course, everyone stopped at the bakery at some point. So it really is all about how you feel, how much you devote yourself to your job, and what you emotionally get out of it. Um, So the book, mine is on the floor, I'll pull it up in a second, um, is for young women who are, not just for young women, but young individuals who are entering into the new economy and what that means. And and you, you talk very early in the book about decentering gender, not letting your gender, define not you. letting your body parts define right. you. And so I'm wondering in this political landscape that we're living in, where even an individual may not let their gender define them, but but the larger world feels like it is being defined for for people. How do you do that? How, do you, how does anybody navigate? Um, so, There's a chapter in the book um, that says, you know, it's basically says you have more power than you think. Um, You're absolutely right. I mean, it doesn't matter if I define myself by my gender. Everyone who's looking at me does, right? I mean, I'm female. And um, it is very important for me and always has been not to define myself by my gender because all of a sudden, Actually, not to define myself by any adjective, not to define myself as an Armenian, not to define myself as a Christian, not to define myself as a minority, as a woman, because immediately what you do is you put yourself in a category, and that comes with baggage. So, of course, people will look at you. They'll say, 
you're Asian, you're black, you're a woman, you are whatever. And they will put you in a category and their expectations will be in that box. That doesn't mean that your expectations have to be in that box. You can be more than that. And that's what I mean when I say you have more power than you think. And I talk about the sexual dynamics in the workplace. The sexual dynamics in the workplace finally is coming to some light, right? Finally, we're talking about it. And some people say, I can't believe this existed. I'm like, where have you been? Of course, it still exists. But I do think that as women, especially for me, when I was a young woman, I felt very much that I was in control of the, of the situation. No matter what happened, I was in control. I was never going to let a guy control the dynamic. And I had certain rules that worked for me and worked for me beautifully because I started my career in the semiconductor engineer, as a semiconductor engineer. No other industry in the world that I can think of was more, is more male dominated than the semiconductor industry. And yet as a young woman, just fresh out of college, traveling all around the United States, a different city every evening as a product owner, presenting my product, being picked up at the airports by sales guys, being taken out to dinner so I could present the next day to audiences, my alcohol tolerance being tested by these uh, hosts of mine, and all of that didn't ever render me powerless because when I was in these situations, I knew that my handshake, the way I looked at some, into someone's eyes, the moment I met them and the way I carried myself, I was communicating, I have just as much power as you have. I'm just as, equal, I'm just as important as you, I'm actually your equal. And if there was any an innuendo, any a pass that um, came my way, and of course there were many times because it's a game, like let's see how she's gonna react. I didn't engage. Now, of course it was easy for me because English is my fourth language and half the time I didn't pick up on it. So, you know, I was like Dr. Spock, I, I didn't react. And when you don't react, when you don't engage, um, the other side, it takes two to tango. The other side kind of gets tired of it and moves on. That doesn't mean that always move on. There are those really pushy people who then you have to actually take action on. You show up at HR, you show up wherever you can file a complaint, and you should. Uh, but not most, the majority um, of the, of the men who are playing to see where they can go with a sexual dynamic aren't really out to get, you know, at all cost um, to get their goal. So I did feel that I could control the dynamic, and I did, and it worked for me. And when I went, so one of the introductions was um, the fact that I'm one of the founders of Broadway Angels. Broadway Angels is a collection of uh, either current or former venture capitalists. All of them happen to be women. And one day, um, at the very beginning of the, this movement, uh, where women were talking about you know, sexual harassment in the workplace, not that long ago, uh, we went around the table, we went around the room, and people talked about what worked for them. And uniformly, it was the fact that they didn't define themselves by gender, 
They did not go to work looking for a boyfriend. They did not go to work looking for a romance. They left their work and their romance very, very separate. They used their clothes to communicate their seriousness. And I use the word grafitas in the book, which basically is your seriousness and your dignity. And that's what I took to work every day, and that's what these women took to work every day. And that makes a big difference, believe me. It makes a big difference 95% of the time. Thank you. Because um, I think, uh, clearly, this conversation is very up in all over, in academia, right, in the tech world, all over this country and this world right now. Um, and so I'm wondering if there's anything that you, from that specific chapter, that you would add or anything. I mean, it's really exciting to hear that you had that conversation in that room with those women. And I often think... Um, here in academia, we need to have that conversation too. This conversation needs to happen, and not just among women, as, you, as, we, as we talked about earlier. Yes. It needs to be among all people. I'm going back to your analogy of a team, right? If we're really going to be a team, if we're really going to be a community, then all parties need to be present in order to make transformation happen. Right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've found that actually works well is um, not engaging, which I already talked about. Um, secondarily, if someone continues to be aggressive, calling it out, saying, you know what? I am not enjoying this. This is not working for me. And just calling it what it is. Don't let it get into the gray zone. In fact, this is not a good, you know, I'm an engineer. I did digital design, so I'm very comfortable in the binary world. But this is a very good application of binary thinking to really not even get into the gray zone, because the gray zone is a slippery slope. So to really keep it very clear, this is, I, I do not appreciate uh, what's going on right now. I don't appreciate your words. And it's just not me, it's also other women who contributed to the book that talk about this. Number three that I think is really important um, is actually calling out your harassers by name. We are so, we as women, are so worried, rightly so, of being singled out, of being cast out, and so we protect our harassers. We do not name, we do not call them out by name. What we need to do as a society is actually make it safe for young women especially to call out their harassers by name. Because if we don't do that, it's going to continue. It's going to perpetuate itself. So having the courage to actually call someone out, not anonymously, but by name, it helps stop that individual much more than anything else. Now, the flip side of that is men saying, and, and I was asked this question yesterday, men saying, I want to mentor young women, but I'm worried, I'm, I want to be their sponsor, but I'm worried about being accused right? So how do I, where do I draw the line? What we really don't want to do is alienate men from helping us as young women. We want to make sure that they feel safe. So again, being very clear about it, as a young woman, if you have a boss who is actually being a good sponsor, to be able to say to your boss, do not worry, I am very clear about your intentions. I really appreciate your helping me, I am not at all worried about any sexual overtones, and I really appreciate that. 
put it out on the table. That individual is going to feel so much better about supporting you, opening doors for you. But if you don't, there is worry for men as well. It's like, I don't want to be accused of something. And what if I'm sending signals that I don't mean because there's this whole unconscious bias thing right now, right? If I'm not conscious, but I'm doing it, what am I doing? What if I get in trouble? So again, clear communication from both sides um, really helps. Making those allies, those sponsors that you have feel comfortable so that they can help you. That's such an interesting conversation. I hadn't thought of that component of it. Um. Yeah, we talk about the um, one of the gender issues in venture capital. Uh, you know, we talk about all kinds of risk in venture capital. One of the issues of bringing a female partner onto um, a venture group is the legal uh, risk, right? What if I'm going to get sued by this person? It's a real, it's, it's part of the decision process. We want to make sure we minimize that so as, as females, we are not, we don't yet have another negative against us. So, so again, opening up the conversation, putting it on the table, complimenting those who really want to, those men who really want to help us and making them feel comfortable with their help that they're extending towards us so that we encourage more of that behavior. We need men to be our allies. This is not about men against women. That's never going to win. It's Gender is not a female issue. Gender is an issue that both sides need to feel comfortable to support. Thank you. And I, I, I also want, as a mother of a 16-month-old child, um, I really appreciated your um, the way that you brought motherhood and fatherhood and really parenthood. Yeah. Like, you know, let's look at all the genders and all the different ways in which people parent, they choose to parent, um, and how that is brought into the workplace. And so could you say a little bit more about your emphasis on parenthood and the importance of? Yeah, so I do think that, um, I mean, personally, I always thought I was going to have kids ever since I was a little kid. So it was never a decision like, do I become a parent or not? I, it was just given. Just like it was given that I was coming to America, I was going to have kids. Um, the, the reality is that having a child is incredibly monumental for females, um, especially in their careers. A man's career track doesn't change that much when they have a child. A woman's does. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure that doesn't happen. It's as simple as that. You know, I always say gender equality does not start at work. Gender equality starts at home. If you have a child and you're doing 95% of the work, of course your career will suffer. You only have so many hours in the day. So gender equality really starts at home. It's the support of um, parenting from both parents. Now, not everybody is lucky to have another partner at home when they have children. There are a lot of single women. And you know, I've gotten letters from them saying, how about us? We don't have anyone. That is a tough situation. But then that's when the community and the network comes into play because you do need a network to raise a child. You can't do it alone. 
And so I'm really curious, at the end of your book, you talked about your current project that you're engaged in um, with your son, I believe. And so I'm curious what this next act or this next adventure looks like for you. So it's very different for me. This is um, this is me coming back into being entrepreneurship, into being an entrepreneur. And oftentimes, uh, when you become a venture capitalist, your or investor of any kind, your lifestyle is a little easier. You know, being an entrepreneur basically is a is a lifetime is a lifestyle of psychosis. Um, you're incredibly depressed and amazingly sad because nothing's working. And then you go to a meeting with a customer and they like what you're doing. And then you're so elated and incredibly proud of yourself and can't believe how smart you are. And so this just goes on. This cycles. Um, so why would anyone do this to themselves, <laughs> especially for the fourth time? And I do think that for me, it's all about um, taking what I've learned and putting it into an industry where basically it's not touched by technology. And that is, don't laugh, it's the auto lending, uh, auto financing industry. Not the sexiest um, tech industry to talk about, and it's not at all a good uh, cocktail conversation. But people need to get to work. People need to take their children to the doctor. People need cars. In fact, in America, outside the urban centers um, like New York or San Francisco, you really can't function as an adult without a car. And yet over 50% of the American population is what we unfortunately call subprime. The subprime mortgage crisis put a very negative label against this term. So the company that I'm working on very simply uh, takes technology and applies it to an industry that hasn't really used much technology to better the consumer experience, to actually separate the good apples from the bad, regardless of FICO scores, and to make um, car ownership and car um, financing available to a large population segment in an affordable way, not the you know really horrible rates that a lot of subprime consumers, especially deep subprime consumers, have to pay. So it's that motivation and also uh, keeps me out of trouble, gives me something to do. So that's, that's why I'm doing it. How is it working with your son? Uh, yesterday I, um, I told this anecdote and got a laughter. Um, so for me, it's no different than working with any other co-founder. When I go to work and I'm working with my son, he is just like any other co-founder I've ever had. I don't even think that we're related. It doesn't even occur to me. It's just, I, you know, I'm working. I, we have problems to solve. We're solving problems. So about three, four months ago, I said to him, when we are at work and you're working with me, do you think of me as your mother? And he said, what kind of question is that? Of course, you're my mother. I think of you as my mother. Why? I said, because when we're at work, I never think of you as my son. I actually don't think we're related. I, it just doesn't occur to me. And he said, something's really wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the truth. I don't. I have this compartmental you know, brain that when I'm at work, 
He's my co-founder. We're problem solving, and he's just like anyone else I work with. And if I see him on a weekend in a social setting, I'm telling him to put on his sweater. (laughs) I'm wondering, what would your elevator pitch be to any one of our audience members or anybody who's considering a youth, you know, who's considering going into the tech world? Do it, (laughs) really. It's technology, first of all, technology is an industry that is very welcoming to outsiders. If you really doubt that, look at the number of people who have heavy accents, who are immigrants, who are walking around as, um, you know, the fabric of Silicon Valley. It's true. So if anyone says technology is a boys club or technology is very much into the bro culture, you know what? Just ignore it. Go for it because it's a great place to make a career. It's a great place to change the world. It's a great place to really feel fulfilled. And you know what, if it doesn't work, there's always gonna be the next wave of technology. You can always catch that one. It's ever changing. So expertise, if you don't have it this time, you're gonna get it next time. I really encourage you, forget the statistics. Yes, they're correct. There are not many of us females, but Anecdotally, we're pretty good. That's why I wrote the book. So go for it. Do it. It really is one that I'm very thankful that I did, you know, ending up here and being part of Silicon Valley for three decades has been a fantastic ride. And I really hope you have it too. Thank you. That's it. I want to thank you once again, Magdalena, for coming. Give a round of applause. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast. <laughs>